We uh, started reading book of Acts here, <clears throat> Acts chapter 6, and some of you might have been tempted to yawn as I was reading through those verses. And I want to tell you this morning, if that's you, don't do that. Don't do that. First of all, in the body, every member has a part, so the body doesn't come apart. Amen? And I've got to tell you, I have never studied the sixth chapter of Acts in the context of 2023 and our culture and what it is like now. I've never looked at the sixth chapter of Acts and thought, how does that fit into where we are at in 2023? And in the spirit of, I'm glad you asked that, I heard questions come sailing out of this story, questions that I think honest people ask and that they deserve to be looked at in light of what's going on around us today in Rockford in 2023. And I think we always need to be asking questions of God's Word, don't we? You get a lot more out of it if you walk into it with questions, or we risk just kind of letting it go in one ear and out the other because there was nothing in the middle to stop it, right? So here are five questions this morning. The first three are really fairly easy questions. We won't spend as much time on those. They're fairly easy. And then the last two questions that I want to try to answer, they may they may need a little more spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, all right? So here we go. Here's the first one. Looking at Acts chapter 6, which we just read a little bit ago, can we really use these accounts as guidelines for the church and with my relationship with Jesus? I mean, if you're here this morning or online this morning and you're looking into what does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus, you hear these verses, you might ask, well, what does this have to do with that? Acts 6 was telling about a story from 1,990 years ago. Not a whole lot of things exist from that time still. So is it even realistic to look at what they did and try to talk about how we should be like that? Are we supposed to do that? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Our cultures change, but there are a lot of things about the culture of the church in 2023 and the culture of the church in the first century that, here's a new word, intersect. There's some intersectionality, okay, regarding those two groups. For instance, and I, and I did a Venn diagram. I love Venn diagrams. I love Venn diagrams, and so it's going to show you how these things intersect. For instance, widows among us and our need to take care of them. That was there in the first century. That's here in the church today, isn't it? It's also organized, by the way, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The church was working on this. In the Old Testament, God had had this recurring theme. Take care of widows, among other groups. Take care of them. They're a special group. And that is still a need in the church today, isn't it? The way that women became widows in the first century is the same as today. So we have those things in common. Here's the second thing we have in common that intersects. Racial struggles cultural struggles, the presence of multiple cultures and ethnic groups gathered together in the church family and the resulting issues that that creates, those were a problem before the church began and as soon as it began and are still an issue that we've got to wrestle with today, don't we? We have that in common. Here's the third one. 
There's no place for favoritism in the Lord's church. James starts out one of his chapters in the book of James by saying, my brothers, show no favoritism as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was this problem in the early church of favoritism, partiality. We're not supposed to treat people differently because of, like James said, because of their economic status. That was wrong in the first century. Guess what? It's wrong now. We have that in common with the first century church. Here's a fourth one, and that is the potential for internal struggles. That's still here, isn't it? That's here. That's that potential in the church, and that was in the church in the first century. It could damage the whole enterprise. It's still there. As long as there are people in the church, there will be the challenges that come because of people gathered together. Challenges like gossip and slander and grumpy attitudes, hurt feelings, power struggles. Those aren't a brand new thing. They had that same issue in the first century. So, you see, we're talking about the church here, which Jesus bought with his own blood. It belongs to him. Amen? And the very best guidelines that we have for deciding how should the church look, what should the church be like, the very best guidelines that we have are in this book. Now, if we're not going to this book to find those, let me ask you a question. Where are you going to find those? Where are you finding better ideas about what the church should be? What are you reading instead? The answer to that question is yes, we really can use these accounts, this story in Acts 6, as guidelines for the church and for my relationship with Jesus. So that's the answer to the first pretty easy question. That was okay, wasn't it? That didn't hurt too much, and I think that's important if we're going to go on from here. So within the framework of our culture, that more and more doesn't like the idea of authority or the idea that any person should somehow be ahead of another person. Have you noticed how formality is kind of dwindling away? Who are you to say that a person should dress a certain way or speak a certain way or act a certain way. And so that raises another question from Acts chapter 6. Here's the question. Does the church have to be stuffy and formal? All right. Yesterday in England, I hear there was a hullabaloo. The coronation of Charles III, King of England... You know what? When you watch the coronation of a king, that's not just an everyday event. And did you notice, because I know some of you who watched that. I won't name names, but I know there's some people here who watched that. Brian Rodert apparently did. That formality included in it the presence of a 67-year-old farmer, Francis John Fane Marmion de Moak, 34th Lord of the Manor of Scrivelsby who carried the royal standard into Westminster Abbey under the title King's Champion. That's a lot of tradition. Originally, the King's Champion was a man who rode in full armor into the coronation banquet, literally threw down a gauntlet and challenged anyone who wouldn't accept the full authority of the king or queen to a duel the king's champion. 
yesterday to Moak, whose family line, by the way, is traced back to the very first king's champion, 1066. He didn't actually challenge anyone to a duel, as far as I know. But as he walked into Westminster Abbey, tradition walked in the door with him. Let me ask a question. Why all the pomp? Why all the color and fluff and ruffle? Why all of the ceremony? Why? This is the king. This is a big deal, right? That's why. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, we are allowed to become part of a kingdom. We acknowledge him as our king, and we acknowledge that that along with that goes all of the worship and all of the respect and all of the reverence that the king, God Almighty, deserves. Amen? We're part of a kingdom. King of kings, Lord of lords, that is no casual thing. At the same time, think about this, we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. With him as our brother. And by the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8, we cry to God, Abba, Father. It's a word like dad. That's a really personal word, isn't it? With Jesus going there before us, we are instructed in the book of Hebrews to approach that throne with confidence and with boldness. So is it possible to do both of those things? Is it possible to have reverent fear and formality and respect for God Almighty and at the same time to have that closeness and intimacy with the one who knows us and calls us by name? Can we do that? Anybody who had a father like my dad understands it is possible. My dad was a looming personality, Sherman Vaughn Nichols. You respected dad. You didn't cross dad. And at the same time, dad was very affectionate. Dad was very quick to give words of love, words of encouragement, and a hug. Dad had that combination in him, a perfect, well, close to perfect, a combination of, of official authority and personal affection that helped him to be approachable with great respect. And the point is this, that you don't have to throw away respect to also draw near to God. He's the one who's invited us to be close to him, but he has invited us to do that never without reverence to him. Widows, according to God, are important. They needed to be cared for. They took, that took some structure to take care of them. It was starting grumbling in the church. Grumbling, by the way, is the opposite of what Jesus prayed for for his church so that was important that that get taken care of, right? This whole thing that we read about in Acts chapter 6 could have potentially taken the apostles away from the important work that they were called to do. It could have taken them away from their role in the church. So all these things were a concern, and organizing to meet these needs head-on was important. I want to tell you, that has not changed. If you're a parent or a grandparent and you want to drop a little one off into our preschool department, you're going to have to observe, guess what, some formalities. For one thing, you get them back when this is over. 
And if you have worked kids into our kids program, you probably already know that that involves some paperwork, it involves a number, it involves checking in, it involves a claim check, and behind the scenes, it involves every volunteer passing a, an official background check, jumping through some hoops in order to serve there. But I want to tell you this morning that your four-year-old in kids' worship this morning isn't going to be too concerned about that. That kid is going to eat some goldfish crackers and have fun with other kids and learn about Jesus and have some fun doing it. So does the church need to be stuffy and formal? That's the question, right? Does the church need to be stuffy and formal? Answer, no. It doesn't need to be that way, but it does need to have structure, and it does need to give attention to certain details for it to be what God wants us to be. There is a balance there, and Acts chapter 6 can help us to appreciate and to develop that balance in the Lord's church. But I've noticed this, too. I've noticed how when groups of people get together, we just kind of take care of one another, don't we? We naturally seem to do that. And that raises a third, simpler question this morning. And that is, shouldn't everyone just take care of one another? Shouldn't everyone just take care of one another? Yes, everyone should take care of one another. Everyone should do a whole list of things. Have you noticed that we don't always get that done? We know some people in the church better than others. We have good intentions, but we forget. We want to help people, but we're not sure what's going on with them, and so we don't want to infringe on their privacy. We want to help, but we don't know what to do. We assume that others are going to step in. Sure, everyone should take care of one another, but here's an example in Acts chapter 6 how that doesn't work unless there is some degree of structure about it in the church. Sure, everyone should take care of one another, but taking care of one another takes some work. Here's the word. It takes being organized for it to work. There was, go back to Acts chapter 6 again, there was a daily distribution, it says at the end of verse 1, going on in the church. What does that mean? It means that in the church there was money or there was food that daily was being gathered together and then taken to a list of widows in the church. And it was already an organized effort. Before, here in chapter 6 of Acts, before that ran into hiccups, it already was organized. In fact, there wouldn't have been these hiccups if they hadn't been trying to do this in the church. So yes, we should take care of one another. Yes, we should take care of one another in an organized way. And that's really hard on some people who would rather die than be organized. You know who you are. And if we look closely at you this morning, we know who you are too. All right. So all of these are to get us to two bigger questions. Here are the ones now that require the spoonful of sugar, okay? I think people are going to ask these regarding following Jesus in our current time, in our current place. When you read Acts chapter 6, these are a couple of questions that I think might just rise up and get asked of us. Here's one. Shouldn't everybody be on equal standing? Are some people in the church, are their opinions more important than others? Are some people in the church better than other people? You've got several groups of people here mentioned in the book of Acts. You've got widows, Hellenists, Jews, apostles. You've got 
qualified leaders. You've got people who are yet not reached with the gospel. You've got Jewish priests who are becoming Christians, all these different groups of people. I'm going to tell you this morning that the words equity and equality were not invented in just the last four years. And this generation is the first generation to think about those things. It's not some new discovery. But I want to tell you this, that we church people need to bring God's wisdom to the table when people start talking about those things. Acts chapter 6 really brings some of that to the discussion. Are you ready? I'm going to say it. Everyone's opinion is not equally wise or true. (gasps) You know what? It should always be that way in the church. Because there should always be a mixture of people in the church. Those who have not yet found Jesus should be here. And those who have been Christians forever, who should be mature in their faith, they should be here too. We should have people in all levels of maturity and understanding here. Amen? So not everyone's opinion is going to be equally true. There should be people who aren't followers of Jesus yet. There should be brand new followers. There should be others who, like it says in Hebrews 5, by this time you ought to be teachers. There are are people who ought to become leaders in certain areas. And you know what? There are others who should not. So here we are, Acts chapter 6. There's this thing happening in the church. There's this need for leadership in the church. And God was providing it through the apostles and now through seven men who are named here. Think about that. The church is over 5,000 people in number by this time, but there are only going to be how many? Seven men who were chosen for this particular task. And by the way, they had certain qualities and they were men specifically men, the word is used. What does that mean about this? I'm glad you asked that. Here's one thing it means. First of all, get this, that all people are equally valuable in God's eyes. Did you hear that? All people are equally valuable in God's eyes. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In this whole discussion about equality, there needs to be some care given to look at this. Because when it comes to our relationship to God, when it comes to our salvation, what does Paul say there in Galatians chapter 3? There are no distinctions. Your ethnic background is a moot point. Your social status doesn't matter. Whether you are male or female is a non-issue. Grace is equally undeserved by all of us. God offers it to everybody the same. Everyone, Paul says, who has been baptized into Christ has put on Christ. Isn't that great news? That means everyone is of equal value before God. But, let's keep going, not everyone is called to every task. 
The Bible is full of examples of people who were chosen to fulfill specific tasks, and they are, some of them, very small groups. For instance, go back in the Old Testament, and you'll find a group of priests and Levites. Everyone who was a priest had to be a descendant from the tribe of Levi. Only one tribe out of 12 could become priests. Whenever you see those big, long lists of names and begats in the Old Testament that so-and-so begat so-and-so, they are there especially because you had to be a descendant of the tribe of Levi, and you had to be in the priestly line to serve as a priest. Only those people could serve in that capacity. Moses, when God wanted to bring Israel out of Egypt, how many people did he call to lead the people out of Egypt? One. He had reasons that he didn't need to do that, but God chose Moses to do that work. No one else was called to that post. After that time, God gave prophets, starting with Samuel, called by God, given specific assignments. Most people in Israel were not, a very small group of them, the prophets were called by God and given this task. The judges, during the period of judges, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, on and on goes a list, but there are actually only 12 of them. Over a period of about 300 years in Israel, for the entire nation of Israel, hundreds of thousands of people, there were only 12 people who served as judges. There were also kings, there were musicians, there were artists, there were others that God set aside for specific work, all of them relatively small groups of people. By the way, Jesus, when he called his closest disciples, called how many to come with him? Twelve. Then in the church, Paul said there are others who are given to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers, small group compared to the huge crowd we get here to Acts chapter 6 this morning. How many men are called to this special task? Acts chapter 6 is the choosing of the seven men. Seven. So what's the point of all that? Glad you asked that. The point is this. Not everyone is called to every task. Is that okay? I hope so because that's what God did. Here's another thing to remember that not all people are equally qualified. Let me show you why. You don't put the first graders in charge of kids' worship. You don't put them in charge of that. There is a reason for that. There is a reason you don't put the men in charge of the nursery. Why don't you do that? Because you get that. I thank Blake for playing the drums this morning for us. Thank you, Blake. You know what? Yeah, you can clap for Blake. That's good. I told him, we need that. We are like the most clap, need help people there are in the world here. So Blake helped us with that this morning. You know, there is a reason we don't put animal from the Muppets in charge of worship ministry. Why not? Because not all people are equally qualified for everything there is to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how we're all part of one body, but that we are all different members and we all have different functions. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 6, not to put a man who recently accepted Jesus into the position of elder. Don't do that. That disqualifies him. He shouldn't do that. 
here we are in Acts chapter 6, in this very specific work of ministry that needs to be done in the church, the people who are selected for the task have certain qualities. Did you see that? They're supposed to have a good reputation. They're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. And like I mentioned, it says they were men, not just mankind, but it uses the word for men. Apparently, some aspects of this particular work, work took the form of leadership and the form of service that best comes through men. Is that so crazy? We're in a culture that's trying to erase that. And yet God has laid it out for us. God has made us with different abilities to be able to engage in different service. So I'm asking, does that degrade people? Doesn't that drive a wedge between people? You know what? No. Appointing specific people to specific work wasn't divisive. In fact, that is what God gave to solve the problem of division in the church. And it did. Why else do you think we have Acts 6 recorded for us here? If you go back up to Acts chapter 5, there's a story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied and God struck them dead on the spot. So we read that story and go, I wonder why that story's in here. Maybe, maybe we should learn something from that. What could it be? Don't lie. That's a good lesson. And we get to Acts chapter 6, and there's this potential problem in the church, and the church gets organized, and, and, and it takes care of the problem. Maybe we can learn Remember, I asked you to look at verse 1. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The word is that there was a grumbling. But then you go down to verse 7, look how it turns out. What does it say? The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Praise God. What happened? between verse 1 and verse 7. Here's what happened. Stephanos, Philippos, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Permanus, Nicolaus. That's what happened. Doesn't mean that everyone isn't on equal standing. It just means that we equally we equally valued people are not all called to do the same things, right? Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Should everyone in the church be on equal standing? On equal standing. Yes, okay. Should everyone in the church have the same roles? No. That's one of the things we learn from Acts chapter 6. All right, one more question. Another question that I think this record answers for us, and if this applies to you, listen to it, please. The question is, do I have to be involved in the church to follow Jesus? You've heard this thought, haven't you? I want to look into following Jesus, but I'm not into organized religion. Organized religion. I'd rather not go through the church. Why should I have to be a part of the church to follow Jesus? After all, look at, uh, look at all the work it took just to try to keep the church together. Why do I want to be a part of that? I like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not so thrilled about this church. 
Let's face it, folks, Jesus is perfect. Following him, uh, that's, that's easier. What's not to love about Jesus, right? Uh, and think about it, the future sounds good too. To live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. All right? Twelve disciples who traveled with Jesus during three years of ministry could all say, if they were honest, following Jesus was great. Jesus loved them. Jesus taught them. Jesus helped them to grow. But when it came to those other 11 guys, sometimes there were problems. They're recorded for us. There were probably some days when John, I can just hear him, was thinking to himself, you know, following Jesus is great, but it would sure be a whole lot better if I didn't have to deal with these other guys. Matthew talk, or Peter talks too much. Matthew is preoccupied with numbers. The rest of them make fun of, of uh, James and me. Maybe you've been one of those people and you say the church would be great if it wasn't for people. <laughs> Can I just follow Jesus? Can I skip the whole church scene? And that, by the way, is the conclusion that a lot of people reach, don't they? Have you ever heard someone say that? Oh, I love Jesus. I'm just not a part of a church. That's especially the conclusion that some reach if they want to claim the benefits of the family name without ever acting like they're a part of the family. So here's the deal. Listen, the church is the bride of Christ, the bride of Jesus. How would you like to explain to Jesus that you would like to be his close friend, his brother even, and at the same time tell him you don't want to be around his wife? I've got four brothers. All four of them are married I love my brothers. What would happen if I said to one of my brothers or all of them, hey, you ought to come visit us in Rockford sometime, but please don't bring your wife. Church is the bride of Christ. Church is the body of Christ. One body made up of many members with special regard for every other member. Any part of the body is connected with every other part of the body, whether that's remotely or closely. If you're part of the body, you're connected with every part of the body. Amen? 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Paul asks, how can you become a part of the body of Jesus and never have any connection to the other members of the body? How do you do that? The church is God's kingdom, assembled for these last days. Let me ask, how do you become a part of God's kingdom while keeping yourself at arm's length from everyone else who is a part of the kingdom? How are you a citizen of a holy nation? That's another Bible term used for the church. How are you a citizen of a holy nation and not associated with your fellow citizens? The church is God's house, God's household, God's family. How do you belong to a household? How do you belong to a family and disassociate yourself from that family? You know, Jesus told the story of a guy who did that who separated himself from his family, who went away, and then he came back to his senses after he was hungry and destitute, and he came back home to his family and back to the relationships of that family, including the strained relationship he had with his older brother. The word church, just that word, means called out. The assembly. Has God called you out? Well, yes. If you're going to be saved, God has called you out, hasn't he? 
He has called you out to be different from this world. And you'll find when you are leaving the things of the world and coming out because God has called you, if you look around, hey, there's some other people that are doing that too. Where are they going? Well, we're all going there together. You're not the only one. Jesus refers to his people as his sheep, and he is our good shepherd. Sheep live in groups. Did you know that? Sheep live in groups, not isolation. When you have a group of sheep like that that live together, they're called a flock. And sheep that go off by themselves, sheep that leave the flock and go away, they're under a different designation. They're called lost. I want to make some applications of this real quick. Um, it's, it's time for us to get ready to go. So let me toss these out to you to walk out with this morning, all right? First of all, let me encourage you to be a disciple from close up. Don't be a disciple from a distance. Church is God's plan. It's not man's plan. Of course the church has some flaws. It has people. For 1,990 years, the church has been logging a list of its flaws, and it doesn't get smaller it just keeps accumulating. But coming to God on his terms, coming to God on his terms includes embracing a role in his church. So I want to ask you this morning, are you coming to God on his terms? Or are you insisting that God conforms to your terms? Don't be a disciple at a distance. Here's the second one, and that is to embrace where God wants to use you, whatever that role is. Every one of us has a place in the household of God. And, you know, part of the joy of following Jesus is to find what that role is that he has for each of us. You're part of the body. I've got ten fingers, and I've got this one finger that's really important to me. It's my left ring finger. No other part of my body can fulfill the role of my left ring finger. That's very important to me, and I want to tell you this, that there is no one else who can fill the role that God has for you to fill in his body, the church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, In a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. You get a choice in this matter. Paul says, keep yourself useful as a vessel in the Lord's house. I want to also have you walk out with this this morning to respect the value of every person. It's obvious that very early on the followers of Jesus were wrestling around with this idea that every person is of equal value, that they shouldn't show partiality, like because of a person's race or because of their social standing. And they had to be reminded of that. James warned against it. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you must love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well, but if you show partiality, you're sinning and are condemned by the law as transgressors. And I know we goof this up at some point, but we understand that every person is a human soul, every person created to live forever with God and desired by God in that way. 
And so the value of every person should direct our thinking of every person. Over the centuries, by the way, it was the followers of Jesus who stood out in their culture because of this, because the church valued every person. Go back in history and look. When there were plagues that were killing millions across the world, it was the Christians who were taking care of the sick and the dying at their own loss. When babies were cast out to die in the Roman Empire, it was the Christians who would find them and take them in as their own and save them. Christians took care of widows and orphans. Christians established hospitals. Do you ever notice how hospitals are named after Christian things? And they built orphanages. All of those are a tribute to the awareness that people of God have that every person has value in God's sight. When we get it right, you get verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because in the body, every member has a part. So the body doesn't fall apart. Hope this morning that you've been able to chew on this. I hope that it sticks with you. And if you're already a part of the body of Christ, I hope it I hope it guides how you approach some things. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope that what you hear is a group of people who are trying very hard to be what God has called us to be. We're not perfect at it. We're working on it. And we plan to stand out as those in our culture who are different because we follow the one who calls us to be this way. So, I'm going to ask you this morning to stand with me. I'm going to ask you to consider... If you would, please stand. Consider your relationship with the Lord. If this is something that you know you need to begin, then God's Word tells us how you become a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, We're going to go from here in a little bit to uh, Disciple Hour, and I know in my class this morning we're going to be talking a little bit about this. When people in the Bible ask, what do I need to do to be saved? There's an answer. There's an answer. And if that's what you're needing to do this morning, if you're asking that question, what do I need to do? There's an answer in Scripture. Acts 2.38 is a good place to look. Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. We've had the blessing of watching over the past weeks uh, a couple new believers who have come forward and said, I want to follow Jesus too. And they were baptized into Christ and we got to share those moments together. That could be you this morning. And if you're ready to do that, we are ready to help you begin your relationship with the Lord. Let's pray. Father, just now, please work on our hearts. Let your word do its work. Let it find a resting place there, but not just a place where it sits stagnant, but where it will it'll find its mark, where it will change us, where it will stir us up in ways that we need to be stirred. Father, thank you for the example of those early believers uh, in many ways like us. So there are so many good things that we can learn from looking at them. And I pray that you'll find our hearts soft today, ready to be shaped by you. Especially, Father, if there is someone here today uh, that needs to step forward and say, I'm ready, ready to follow Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. 
Amen. Step forward this morning if you're ready to accept him.